0: Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's podbea dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today.
1: Often the New Zealand company will tend to work quite well, and it's just a matter of having an awareness of the double tax um, implications and to plan around that. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm.
0: Episode 286 of Text Talks. This is Heido Robson and thank you to CLASS for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, we already talked about the tax implications of expanding overseas in general. In this episode, we will talk specifically about expanding into New Zealand because New Zealand is often the first country our clients expand into. Here's Mike Reddy of New Zealand Tax Accountants or NZ Tax Accountants discussing your options and tax implications when you do expand into New Zealand. So let's start with the example of John again and let's start very simple with a very simple scenario where John just sells a few items into New Zealand but he has no stock, no staff, no office, no warehouse, no bank account, just nothing in New Zealand is there anything John needs to look out for?
1: Generally there won't be very many. I'm presuming from this that John doesn't need a bank account because if he needs a New Zealand bank account there will be issues to consider prior to that and that's the result of New Zealand's anti-money laundering legislation. So if uh, John is receiving payments from New Zealand consumers and they're happy to pay by credit card, or they are happy to send money overseas to the Australian bank account, then the New Zealand authorities aren't particularly interested in what John is up to. Okay, and
0: now let's let's assume he does need a bank account in New Zealand, then he just has to get through the uh, know your customer hurdles and provide all the information to the banks, or is there more?
1: Well, that is the legal requirement. The practicalities of it is that it is very difficult for a small non-resident business to open up a New Zealand bank account full stop. The banks are technically uh, required to go through the the know your customer process. But the obligations on the banks getting that right, the compliance costs and the ongoing obligations they have make it a lot easier in practical terms for the banks to say, you know what, unless you're Qantas or BHP, we're really just not interested in you. And I'm sorry, we're not going to open the bank account. Another piece of confusion there can be is where there are Australian banks who have New Zealand banks and examples of that could be the likes of ANZ, and we get the lot where people can say, well, I've got an ANZ account in Australia. Will they open up an account for me in New Zealand? The banks are quite separate. They share logos, they share colour schemes, but their systems are quite different. There can be informal arrangements between the two. But just because you have a bank account with the ANZ in Australia uh, doesn't mean diddly squat in being able to open up a New Zealand bank account. A workaround can be when um, Australian banks will set up a New Zealand currency account for the customer. But from the New Zealand customer's perspective, often they've still got to use SWIFT codes and things. The whole feel of the payment process is quite foreign compared to a straight EFT deposit into John's competitor's who are based in new zealand with genuine bank accounts now if john's consignments if the average sale to these new zealand customer exceeds one thousand dollars john needs to be mindful that new zealand customs will assess gst on the border and that will approach be approached by a couple of different ways from new zealand customs sometimes they will hold the product at the border ring John's customer in New Zealand and say, we've got some stuff for you here at the Wharf, come pay the GST and we'll release the product. That
0: would go well the customer.
1: John's customer will be thinking, gee, life was a lot easier when I when I purchased from the New Zealand supplier. I didn't have to do that. The other thing that may happen is that John may be sending his product through a freight forwarder or for other reasons, New Zealand customs may very well charge John that GST and John has a big problem with that. And that the products were not situated inside New Zealand at the time that the customer rang John and says, I want one of those please. And so therefore John's not carrying out a taxable activity in New Zealand. He can't register for GST. So that New Zealand GST will generally come straight out of his margin. By not, And if that applies by not being GST registered will put John at a significant disadvantage and not being able to claim that GST input back. I just want to circle back just a little bit. GST is certainly going to be claimed if John is sending his uh, product to New Zealand consumers. If he is sending it to New Zealand businesses, and that is clearly labeled, it is likely that New Zealand customs may, in practical terms, for the product. But under the legislation, I need to stress that GST is applicable on assignments of more than $1,000. So there's a difference there between discretion and the practicalities. And to bring another complication in with regard to your $60,000, if John is sending his product from Australia to New Zealand customers, and he is selling those to New Zealand, what we call a registered person, that is a New Zealand business that is registered for GST in New Zealand, Then as the goods are being supplied from outside New Zealand, he won't be required to register for GST. And the reason, the reason for that is, is quite a practical one. New Zealand didn't want every business in the world to have to register for GST to charge a business GST when they simply claim it back of their next GST yes. return and yes. it goes around the circle. Ma- ma-
0: makes sense, because in the end, the New Zealand business will pay the GST. They won't have an input tax credit and it all comes through the wash.
1: Correct. So with regard to the example you've given of John, the $60,000 really applies if those $60,000 of are sales to consumers. are to consumers.
0: And now let's say... John has to register for GST. He can do that as an Australian entity. He can do that as an Australian company or as an Australian sole trader, whatever he's trading as. But let's assume he is an Australian company. He can register as an Australian company in New Zealand for GST. But Not then I understand. Always. I see. Okay. I would love to know why and when. And then also, I think my understanding is, I think I read it somewhere in your notes, that to register for GST in New Zealand, you need to have a New Zealand bank account, which then takes us back to the first problem we discussed. But I better hand over to you because you know the answer.
1: Okay. Let's just circle back to that first one. If John is sending his product from Australia to New Zealand, then he has two, two problems. One of them is He's a non-resident and under the New Zealand's GST legislation, goods and services provided by a non-resident are deemed to be supplied from outside New Zealand. If he's supplying them from outside New Zealand, in other words, they're not in New Zealand physically, if we're talking about product at the time of the order, John is not carrying out a taxable activity in New Zealand, so he can't register for GST in New Zealand so that's a bit of an issue for john and we have that a lot where we have uh, people calling us to say look we're um, our freight forwarders have have charged us gst and i say well where was the product at the time of the supply and they say well it was in our melbourne warehouse and um i'm saying well the goods weren't in new zealand you're not carrying out a taxable activity in new zealand so generally speaking you can't register for gst in new zealand Uh, There are import, well, not really import duties, but, uh, and there's not really import costs between Australia and New Zealand because of the free trade agreement. There may be on some products, cigarettes and alcohol comes to mind. Generally speaking, there aren't duties if the product is coming from Australia. Generally, that's going to depend on the product. Unless John can have the GST charged by customs to the customer, and he can't request that, he can't phone them up. It's a practicality. So generally speaking, if John is is posting the product himself, goes down to Australia Post and and sends the product across, then customs are not going to go looking for John. It could be anywhere in the world. So that's when they'll tend to hold the product at the wharf, phone the customer, say, we've got your your product here, come and pay the GST and you can walk away with the product. If John is sending container loads of products, or there's a lot of stuff going across and he uses a freight forwarder to handle the consignment and the customs paperwork and everything, then it is likely that freight forwarder will charge John the GST as part of the consignment, the the travel of the, the movement of the product. And that's where we get back to the point raised before that the GST will be charged to John. And as he's not carrying out an activity in New Zealand, he won't be able to register in New Zealand for GST purposes, And generally speaking.
0: So to be able to claim the New Zealand GST back, the product needs to be in New Zealand at the time of sale.
1: Or he needs to be using a New Zealand company because under the GST legislation, a New Zealand resident... The goods and services are deemed to be supplied from inside New Zealand. So if there is a New Zealand entity, then generally speaking, they can register, John can register for GST, claim the import credits, charge the customer, the New Zealand customer 15% GST and account for it much the way, same way that we do over here in Australia.
0: When John starts and he just sells a few products, they're all well below $1,000, everything yep. is fine. There won't be any GST he can just sell. The moment he goes over $1,000 or the moment he goes, or probably he since he can't register for GST, since he's not carrying out an activity in New Zealand, the $60,000 threshold then doesn't really apply to him. So it really only is the $1,000 per shipment threshold that matters to him, correct?
1: <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> Depending what John is selling, and again, if he's selling to consumers, the $60,000 limit does come into uh, fact or factor, and much the same, we have actually a similar legislation here in Australia. If John is selling more than $60,000 of product to New Zealand consumers, he is required to register under a special provision of New Zealand's legislation where he has a duty to charge those New Zealand customers 15% New Zealand GST and account for that GST to inland revenue. Unfortunately, he's not able to claim any GST credits.
0: The permanent establishment wouldn't give him the input tax credit either, correct?
1: Well, we're looking at where the goods are. So that's correct. That wouldn't necessarily uh, move. As I said before, under the GST legislation, the deemed provision is that a non-resident supplying product to New Zealand customers is deemed to be outside New Zealand. So even if it's sitting in an Auckland warehouse, there is that deemed provision. However, when you're selling to consumers, we're looking at is where the goods are are located and when you're selling to new zealand businesses again it's where it's located but there are other even if it is located in auckland warehouse and you're selling to a new zealand business The products are still deemed to be supplied from outside New Zealand under the non-resident rule. So you have to have letters in place with each of your New Zealand business customers agreeing that the supply is taking place in New Zealand.
0: Would a permanent establishment count as a business for GST? So if John sells to his permanent establishment in New Zealand, would that be a business to business sale, hence not subject to GST?
1: The tests are different. Permanent establishment is an income tax test, not a GST test. Okay, so
0: for GST. So can't.
1: GST, we do talk about a place of business, rather the slight difference in terminology, and that can be fairly wide. So we'd have to look at at the practicalities. What is this permanent place in, in New Zealand? Is it where the goods are? Is it simply they've got a, a, some sort of a virtual office or an office there? Um, it gets a little bit more complex to work okay, so out let's exactly assume, what the role is.
0: Let's assume it's in a warehouse and they have somebody on commission to, to ship the product and somebody buys it. Well, something. There's,
1: there's an argument then that the goods are in New Zealand. And also, if that warehouse is their warehouse, pretty straightforward. But if you're using a third party logistics warehouse, then that's not necessarily regarded as being in New Zealand with regard to the uh, permanent establishment rule.
0: If it's just a normal warehouse and yep, you rent yep, the size yep, of yep. a garage.
1: Yes, and then, then the goods are in New Zealand at the, the time of the New supply. Zealand at the and time
0: of the supply. So then it would be a sale from business to business, hence not subject to GST.
1: If you're selling it to a business, yes, yes. But if you want it to be a supply, in other words, you've you've ended up paying the New Zealand GST to customs, then you would want a letter in place with that New Zealand business customer of yours agreeing that the supply is taking place in New Zealand. Therefore, you can register for New Zealand GST, charge that customer GST and claim back those those GST charges from customs.
0: So now coming <laughs> to the income tax. Sorry. I probably caused some confusion here, especially around the input tax credit. So let's just quickly unpack this again. If the goods are still in Australia at the time of sale, you have the Australian input tax credit to the extent that you paid Australian GST to obtain the goods. And then when you export the goods, there is no Australian GST since exports are GST free. So in Australia, you just have the input tax credit. So now the goods arrive in New Zealand and there you... Incur GST, assuming you exceed one of the thresholds, etc. So all is usual, input tax credit and then the GST on the sale. The only difference is that the input tax credit is in Australia and the GST on the sale is in New Zealand if the goods are already in New Zealand at the time of the sale, it means you must have already exported them from Australia to New Zealand. So at the start, it looks exactly the same. You have the Australian input tax credit and then no Australian GST on the export. Now the goods arrive in New Zealand and you possibly pay New Zealand GST on the import of the goods into New Zealand, but. If you are registered for GST, you can claim that New Zealand import GST back. And when you sell the goods, that sale, of course, is subject to a New Zealand GST, again, following the normal rules, assuming you're registered or supposed to be registered for GST. Hopefully that made some sense and took away some of the confusion I caused. Now, back to Mike. Okay. Okay. So now coming to the income tax.
1: <laughs> Nothing is quite as easy as it might seem. There's all the, always these different ones, right? Income tax. That's another yes. goodie.
0: Yep. In income tax, the all-defining threshold is the permanent establishment. While we don't have a permanent establishment in New Zealand, meaning we don't have any stock or any people in New Zealand, we don't have a permanent establishment. Hence, no New Zealand income tax is applied to any of the profits made in New Zealand.
1: Not necessarily. There's a new international agreement that both Australia and New Zealand have signed up to, and that is known as the MLI, the Multilateral Instrument. This is the OECD's way of trying to clamp down on um, uh, ensuring that everybody is paying tax somewhere.
0: Yeah, it's the BEPS project,
1: isn't it? Yeah, yes, yes. Now, a little complication is that Australia and New Zealand signed up to different provisions. So they have kind of come up with a synthesized version. However, even in that synthesized version, New Zealand's interpretation of certain terms appears in practical terms to be slightly different from the ATO's perspective. But certainly if you have a permanent establishment in New Zealand, then there will be an income tax issue. Uh, certainly yes. to consider, yes.
0: Exactly. And you have a permanent establishment as soon as you have products or people on the ground.
1: A little more than that. Um, a permanent establishment, generally speaking, is something that is that is more permanent, such as an office. A warehouse could be, particularly if there was someone in there administering it. So you're, you're looking at certainly a permanent sort of physical presence there. Also coming into the picture is the double tax agreement between Australia and New Zealand, which also includes a couple of other things, including if you um, have someone in New Zealand for more than 183 days in a 12 month period, and they're working on a project or connected projects or doing things that are connected, you have a deemed permanent establishment in New Zealand. So you may not have your own office, But the New Zealand authorities will regard it as being the equivalent of a a permanent establishment. And so that will come under New Zealand's tax rules as well. One, two, that if you have an individual in New Zealand and during that time they earn more than 50% of your entity's revenue, New Zealand and Australia, then that will also factor into the deemed permanent establishment so it's not necessarily just a a fixed office and if you don't have a fixed office you don't have a permanent establishment there are still things that you really need to get advice on because there are these quirky things so we're working with new zealand legislation we're working with the mli we're working with the double tax agreement and we're working with with tax policy between Australia and New Zealand. So it's not as though we can just go to one resource and say, or, or guide and sort of say, well, here's the explanation of the situation that John is now in. And with the, if I can say too, with regard to this, this ongoing project, you have to be very, very careful about that. We deal a lot with Australians who are involved in the likes of Westfield projects or shopping precincts. We have people who are involved in uh, New Zealand's motion picture uh, industry where they go along to provide support and and they may go along thinking that the project is perhaps going to be four months. It's uh, less than the 183 days. And so everything is fine. They come back to Australia and then find that within that 12 months, they've picked up another job and they're back over there again and before you know it when we look at the 12 months and the 12 months includes the day you arrive if you arrive uh, at auckland international airport for your quarantine at five minutes to midnight you've been there a day so when there's any possibility you might be back or the project could run over certainly recommend that you 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 don't throw caution to the winds, you start planning as though you're gonna be there for more than 183 days, or there can be an effective double taxation situation. And the double tax can, can effectively come out that if you have an obligation to file a tax return in New Zealand and you pay income tax in New Zealand, those imputation or what we call over here franking credits aren't available to Australian resident shareholders. So over here, they become an unfranked dividend and subject to tax a second time. So if John is trading on behalf of his trust or John personally and his partner, then if they access those New Zealand profits, they're going to effectively perhaps be taxed at 60 to 70 cents in the dollar by the time John gets to spend the money.
0: This issue of double taxation for um, New Zealand income tax, that only, I must have lost you, that I thought that only applied to companies. I thought as a sole trader or as a trust, you can claim a foreign tax offset.
1: Uh, Yes, well, number one, I can't give Australian tax advice. But number two, if John was uh, trading in his own name, absolutely right. And I take that back.
0: And the same with the trust. And so same it's with only the trust, with but if there is a company. So that's basically the problem if you set up a New Zealand company is that you basically pay tax twice.
1: That can be the case if it's not structured correctly. Yes.
0: How would you structure it? To- oh,
1: it's going to depend on all these things that were sort of talked about. It's going to depend on the GST. It's going to depend on the requirement or not for a New Zealand bank account. It's going to depend on the residency of that company. Under the multilateral instrument, the ATO may also be regarding that New Zealand company as an Australian tax resident, uh, where you have the situation that New Zealand say it's ours under New Zealand legislation because the company's incorporated there. Australia says it's theirs because it's a foreign company managed and controlled from Australia. You have these sort of agreements in between on who's going to grab it. So it really needs to be looked at and set up correctly, particularly if John's a relatively small business and it is only his trust. Clearly, a lot of people think the best way to sort the double taxation and matter out is to simply charge a management fee to that New Zealand company. Now, because and and effectively then transfer the New Zealand profits to Australia, you get the franking credits. Now, you have an issue there because you're moving profits from one tax jurisdiction, New Zealand, to another Australia. And so there are limits on the extent to which you do that. It's not simply a matter of saying that John's company has uh, made a $200,000 profit. It's charged a $200,000 management fee problem solved. There are limits to the extent you can use management fees. Um, It's it's a device that's overly used and that can be quite painful for the Australian agent when they're having to justify... often there's no management agreement in between the two entities. There are no director's resolutions. And those are the first things that a tax authority will ask for. And then how it was calculated. It can only be on cost. And we've seen the situation where um, a labour cost of $100,000 have been charged to a New Zealand company. But when we look at the Australian's profit and loss account, there's only $80,000 of cost there. And the New Zealand entity might be 10% of the group revenue. It just doesn't stack up. From fact, the the management fee isn't a recovery of profits. Um it's it's a recovery of the costs incurred in supplying that service to the to the New Zealand company. So any sort of intercompany movement, whether it be by management fee or another name, you've got to be very careful that you're using that. Now that's handy and it's commercially sensible because the New Zealand activity should be paying its way. It shouldn't be subsidised by the Australian entity. So it is under basic commercial rules, it makes a lot of sense to, um, to make that charge and it's important, but it's wrong to sort of think that it's going to solve this double taxation issue. So the permanent establishment is sort of one issue. The tax residency of the company is another, and I mentioned before about the MLI. And the MLI multilateral instrument is an agreement, which um, as you would expect coming through European authorities is, is the size of a phone book. And we've seen that many Australian accountants have actually uh, uh, reduced that phone book down to saying, well, if the directors live in Australia, it's an Australian tax resident. And we hear that going around a lot. And it, it is far more than just determining where the directors live. And there's the COVID implications too, that sometimes directors are making decisions where they are because they can't get to where they need to be. And that needs to be looked at as well. Sometimes around the double taxation, depending on the dollars, it it might be useful to look at other structures other than companies. But every structure has advantages and uh, disadvantages. And it's a matter of just working through to ensure that you get the right outcome. Often the New Zealand company will tend to work quite well. And it's just a matter of having an awareness of the double tax um, implications and to plan around that. Unless John's business is particularly successful in New Zealand and making screeds of money, is usually quite possible to manage a New Zealand company to get the right result. And we're only talking about distri- distributed um profits too. If the Australian company owns the New Zealand company and it's making money and the Australian company retains that for its own growth and development and instead pays dividend on its Australian sourced income, then that double taxation situation isn't going to uh, necessarily arise because it's really going to arise on allocations of profit to the resident shareholders. There are means of sort of you know, getting around things, but it's a matter of making sure the ducks are in a row and everything's saying the same story, and that it's pretty clear it has been set up for commercial reasons rather than tax, which is always going to trip you up. That <laughs> New Zealand is the easy, one of the easiest countries in the world to do business. Unfortunately, it also has one of the harshest penalty regimes and ignorance is no excuse. And that's where a lot of things can get tripped up. Australia think, oh, New Zealand's like us, they use the same uh, terms. They start doing business there much the same way that they would in Australia, thinking, in fact, if you ring the company's office up and say, we're looking at doing business, they will helpfully guide you in completely the wrong direction. They'll say, oh yeah, you can just register your asset company in New Zealand, just do this, da-da-da-da-da, it's all done. And then there's issues with regard to GST, there's issues with regard to income tax, there's issues in getting bank accounts, there's all these other things. So getting it set up right is a really key fundamental, or it's going to turn into carnage at the end. But don't think that because you've been able to make mistakes and contact ATO and they've said naughty person, all okay, New Zealand are going to do the same thing. They, um, they're they say, pretty harsh with the too- penalties. And, yeah.
0: your and
1: and just so you don't do it again, here's the penalty. So it really pays to get it done right, first out. Once you're there, it's relatively easy to do business, a lot easier, a lot less bureaucracy. It's a freer labor market. You don't have penal rates to worry about. You don't have a lot of issues that we have in Australia. It's a very free market, but that doesn't mean that you can simply ignore things and be haphazard with the way you're doing your forms and applications and think that it's gonna be a fairy tale. It won't be. There's certainly no quarterly reporting in New Zealand. And the other thing that Australians need to understand too, is that no two tax types are the same in New Zealand. They don't have an integrated account. GSTs are in their own periods with their own payment date, which is different from any employer withholdings which is different from any non-resident withholding tax. All tax types are done differently. They've got to be allocated to the correct tax type and allocated to the correct period. That's one thing. With regard to GSTs, your choice is monthly, which we would suggest you're only ever going to do if you're expecting lots of refunds. Two monthly, which is the common one, or six monthly is an option if John's sales are less than half a million a year.
0: John basically needs two accounting systems, meaning he needs two zero accounts. He needs one zero account for his Australian business and one zero account for his New Zealand business because he can't lodge New Zealand tax returns or GST returns through his Australian zero account. He needs a a New Zealand zero account for that. And then he could actually, through his zero account, he could actually lodge the GST returns himself if he's designed to do so. So do you also have something like zero tax for New Zealand where you can lodge the income tax return for the New Zealand company? Correct.
1: John also needs to be aware if he's using, uh, if he's either registering his Australian company in New Zealand or uh, trading through his New Zealand company, there's the annual re-registration fee, the equivalent of our ASIC fee. And that's um, for us to do it and prepare the required resolutions and pay the fee is about 200 per year.
0: So that's corporate compliance and it's IRD, isn't it?
1: No, that's with the New Zealand Company's Office. That's the equivalent of ASIC over here.
0: Who do you renew the uh, company registration with in New Zealand?
1: New Zealand Company's Office.
0: So do you abbreviate that to NCO?
1: You abbreviate it to New Zealand Company's Office. <laughs> okay.
0: okay, good. No acronym. <laughs>
1: Good. They're not known by any other by any other name. Well, I'm sure they're known by a few. But uh,
0: what is the government fee? You know that the New Zealand company office charges for the renewal of the company. Their
1: current fee, I think, is about uh, uh, fifty dollars or thereabouts. The other important yeah. service that we that we also offer when setting up the entity is to negotiate with both ATO and New and Inland Revenue with regard to the residency, which gets quite complex. So we'll sit there and we'll determine the, um, the you know what we believe is the residency, and we'll ad- advise, uh, and that that can result in an exemption from having to file an income tax return, say in New Zealand, to which is also a good way of of solving the uh, double taxation. Now that won't apply if there is a permanent establishment in New Zealand; a tax return will have to be filed. But if John is doing everything from Australia through his New Zealand company, there may be. The prospect of ensuring that all income tax is paid in Australia and that will mean that John will have franking credits and um, John will be happy as a result of that.
0: You can set that up. We, there, we, there is no income tax in New Zealand and all the income tax is in Australia.
1: If we can, we will.
0: So That's basically then a solution, isn't it? Uh, it it can be up, a solution.
1: Yep. Yeah, so uh, setting we, up a
0: company in New Zealand, claiming the input tax credits through that company. So GST is sorted and then having this exemption that you don't have to pay any income tax in New Zealand and you pay all income tax in Australia. Yep. Come back. Let's just quickly talk about income tax again. In Australia, as you know, of course, you're taxed on your worldwide income, assuming you're a tax resident of Australia. And so, any profits you make in New Zealand are taxable in Australia. But how much tax you actually pay when and where depends on what you're doing in New Zealand and also how you are structured in New Zealand and in Australia. And so, there are five scenarios. Number one, you have no presence in New Zealand, no employees, no warehouse, no office, no company, no trust, no partnership, nothing. And so you pay no income tax in New Zealand. Everything is taxed in Australia. Mm. The next scenario is at the opposite side of the spectrum. You have a New Zealand entity in New Zealand. And so that New Zealand entity will pay New Zealand income tax in New Zealand like Anybody else in New Zealand. And when this New Zealand entity distributes profits to Australia, they arrive in Australia as NANI or as foreign income with foreign income tax offsets attached, depending on whether the New Zealand entity is a company, trust or partnership. So... All is well until here. The problem really only starts in Australia when you have an Australian company that now distributes those profits. And of course, those profits don't have franking credits attached since they arrived as nani or with foreign income tax offsets. So that is when you have tax leakage. But you might be able to avoid this by using trusts in New Zealand and Australia, or you just don't distribute the New Zealand profits, but use them to grow the business in New Zealand and slash or in Australia. So those were the first two scenarios one on each side of the spectrum. The one extreme is you have nothing in New Zealand and then the other extreme is you have a New Zealand entity in New Zealand. So now the third scenario is right in the middle and that is when you have no legal entity in New Zealand but you have a presence, be it employees, a warehouse, an office or something else, then you have a so-called permanent establishment, either a real physical establishment like an office or a warehouse or just a deemed one, thanks to employees or dependent contractors. But whether it is real or deemed doesn't really matter. The only thing that really counts is that this permanent establishment does pay tax in New Zealand. And just by the way, not everything triggers a permanent establishment. You can have three PL services, for example, in New Zealand, or you can have independent contractors there without triggering a PE. So the New Zealand Permanent Establishment, pays New Zealand tax and then the Australian company gets an offset for the tax paid in New Zealand. But as before, you have tax leakage when those New Zealand profits are distributed to Australian shareholders without franking credits, assuming we are dealing through a company in Australia. However, if you trade through an Australian trust or as an individual, then you can claim the New Zealand tax as a foreign income tax offset and hence you don't have tax leakage now the fourth scenario so we had number one was nothing at all in new zealand number two was a legal entity in new zealand number three was a permanent establishment number four is number four is kind of off the scale it's it's an it's something odd and that is but mike referred to it a number of times so i wanted to cover it here as well and number four is when you have a new zealand company but this new zealand company is actually an australian tax resident and not a new zealand tax resident and of course you need to get new zealand to agree that there is no new zealand tax residency which is um, which is an obstacle in itself and then this would actually be an ideal outcome because it means you only pay australian tax and hence get full franking credits and this scenario was a viable option after bywater and after Tax Ruling Twenty Eighteen Slash Five. You might remember that after Baywater, with this tax r- ruling, everything was completely focused on the location of central management and control, meaning where the Australian directors or where the where the directors were in general, wherever the directors were, that was where central management and control was, and that was as TR 2018-5 argued, that was then where the tax residency is. And so that meant that you could easily have a New Zealand company that is a tax resident in Australia when the Australian directors of this New Zealand company are in Australia. However, this is about to change because this TR 2018-5 caused lots of problems and didn't really make much sense. And so the Board of Taxation had a look at the issue, reviewed it, published its recommendations in July last year and The 2021 budget, you might remember on the 6th of October last year, already included these recommendations. And what those recommendations basically mean, those changes basically mean, is that the central management and control test now requires a significant economic connection to Australia, meaning the core commercial activities must be in Australia and, of course, the central management and control as well. But so the core commercial activities must be in Australia before this company would be an Australian tax resident. And so with those changes, it will no longer be enough to only have the Australian directors in Australia, meaning your central management on control in Australia, if your core commercial activities are in New Zealand. And so the fourth scenario won't really work anymore going forward once the um, Board of Taxation Recommendations Have been made law as they probably will because they've already included in the 2021 budget. And then, just a side comment New Zealand is a listed country, so the CFC rules, the controlled foreign company rules don't apply. And so that means you're back to three options either nothing in New Zealand apart from 3PL services and independent contractors, or you have a New Zealand entity, a New Zealand company, or partnership or trust or the scenario in the middle where you have a permanent establishment in New Zealand so that's income tax but let me just quickly talk about setting up a bank account in New Zealand because that is tedious and tricky but also very often a must because you need a bank account to get an IRD number and you need an IRD number for your company to be registered for GST Getting a bank account in New Zealand is tedious and it's true that even if you already bank with an Australian bank who has a bank in New Zealand it is still tedious and just to refresh your memory the Australian banks who have banks in New Zealand are Westpac, ANZ, NAB who owns Bank of New Zealand and then the Commonwealth Bank who owns the ASB and if you haven't heard of ASB before a long time ago it was known as Auckland's Saving Bank but now it is just ASB and so It is still tedious, even if you bank with one of those four. But if you or your client has a designated banker with one of those Australian banks, then those bankers seem to be able to speed up things in New Zealand. At least that is my experience with SNAP and Bank of New Zealand. The moment the personal banker got involved, things happened quite quickly. In the next episode, episode 287, Melissa McGrath of Corman Gregg Lawyers in Sydney will talk about the tax treatment of intellectual property. And we will, in the first episode, we will talk about intellectual property in general. And then in the following episode, we will talk about the tax treatment of IP. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.
1: Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of US consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com/brands to learn how it do. That's p o d b e a n.com/brands
0: and you could be the one talking instead of me.